the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. And today we are talking about black radical thought and the history of philosophy. But before we get into that conversation, as usual, we need some drinks, and I'd like to know what you're ranting or raving about. I'll jump in first here. I am going to have two fingers of Buffalo Trace with A-Rock. And today I am raving about the Peacock series, The Traitors. Now, I want to be very clear that I'm only raving about the Australian version of this series. There is a U.S. version that has celebrities in it, and there's a British version where apparently all the contestants have forgotten about the British stiff upper lip. They're just a bunch of crybabies. <laughs> but there is an Australian version that is amazing. And as a longtime fan and devotee of reality television, I have to tell you that the finale of this show made me audibly gasp. I could not believe what I was watching. So please watch it. It's only about 10 or 12 episodes long. Absolutely amazing. And you will cry in the end. It is so good. All right, Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? Well, for my drink, I'm going to ditch the hooch for the booch. My new <laughs> slogan I'm coming up for promoting kombucha. So I'm going to have a Synergy kombucha. I started drinking this when I had a nasty bout of food poisoning and it goes well as a nice aperitif. And I'm <laughs> I'm going to rant about effacing history in the name of preserving history. For those of you who don't know, in January, Portland, Maine, or all of Maine, had a massive storm with some of the highest tides ever recorded. And in that storm, many structures and buildings were destroyed, including 200-year-old fisherman shacks that stand on the end of Willard Beach in South Portland. Oh. They were washed away into the sea. Mm. And as someone who visits that beach regularly with my dog, the shacks are nice. They make a nice little photo op. They're always there. But there's this idea now to rebuild them. And I just have a problem with that. I would much rather confront the real history we're living through, record-breaking tides and ocean rising, than try to preserve this quaint Manor history of these old fishing shacks, which they're not functional. They haven't been functional for years. They are there for photo ops, as I said. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we have two guests this week, Pico Mandela Gray and Ryan Johnson. So I'd like to welcome you guys to the show and get your rants and or raves. Pico, do you want to go first? I guess I can. So you all were talking about drinks that you like to sip. I'm always a fan of a Macallan 12 neat. Nice. Usually a double, but that's when you have money. So, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, that's my kind of carrying on, but I love a good Macallan neat. I've been ranting about this for a very, very, very long time, and I'll just leave it at ceasefire now. That's my main thing, is that I'm really concerned about the death toll in Gaza and just watching as mm. the devastation continues to rise and the buildings are being demolished and entire neighborhoods are falling to the ground. And it's one of those things that I'm horrified at how many world powers can sit here after this amount of time and not demand for a ceasefire right now. So that's what I've been ranting about. Mm. I'll be ranting about it moving forward. Preach. I hope you don't have to rant for too long about that. I hope so, too. I'm really <laughs> hoping that this ends soon. 
but the death tolls are incredibly high. And so, yeah, anyway, yeah. Ryan, what about you? Thanks so much for having us, by the way. Super exciting and fun and honored. So I think I usually get an aviation. Oh, nice. It's like a morning drink, right? I I think it's a rave, but I've recently encountered people who want to rant about the newish film Zone of Interest. It's about the prison commandant at Auschwitz, but it's about idyllic family life. So the camp is actually in the background and you're in the house and in the garden and there's these images of the expectation of a Nazi family and happy and blonde, all that. But in the background of the movie, there's the sounds of the camp on the other side of the wall and the smoke going up and it's just this juxtaposition of the quietude of it Ooh. and then the horror of it wow. literally on the other side of the wall yeah and then the last five minutes or so is the most amazing thing i've seen in a long time in film i don't want to give it away but it switches between that world and by the way it was actually filmed at auschwitz not in the exact mm-hmm. house where the commandant lived because that's been occupied since the war by a private person <laughs> So they rebuilt it on another side of a different wall. It's horrific and shattering. And I was so moved by it. I'm using it to begin my class next week. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds amazing. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to go back to my winter standard. I'll have a Manhattan with rye. And today I am raving about the Apple Plus TV series, Slow Horses. I don't know if you've all seen it, but it just is a lot of fun. It's a spy series with some action and so on. It's also very funny, and Gary Oldman is in it, and he's fantastic. I think it's just a really great, fun series. Very low stakes, which sometimes I need. Yeah. So, Jason, I know today we're talking about Black Radical Thought and the history of philosophy. How are we going to approach it? Yeah, well, I'm very glad that we have Biko and Ryan on the show, co-authors of one of the best books I read in the past year, Phenomenology of Black Spirit. Wait, the year's only three weeks old. (laughs) I said past year. Do I have to start over? No. (laughs) No, okay. So the book manages to do two remarkable things at once. First, it extracts from Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, figures of consciousness, the famous master and slave, but also stoicism, skepticism, and unhappy consciousness, making them less stages in the progression of Western philosophy and more general ways to think about subjectivity and its engagement with the world. Second, by reading these figures against the history of black thought, juxtaposing Frederick Douglass's narrative of slave revolt against Hegel's famous master and slave, and reading the struggle of faith and devotion against the lives of Martin Luther King Jr. and Angela Davis, it draws out the profound challenge of the black radical tradition to the history of philosophy. It is a stunning demonstration of a relationship to philosophy that is at once creative, breaking the boundaries between exegesis and history, and politically committed, reading for the struggle for liberation. And talking about this book, I hope we can talk about bridging the gap between the history of philosophy and the history of struggles for liberation, what the two different histories can offer each other, and how they can not only transform each other, but transform what it means to do philosophy. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about is that you guys co-authored this book, and I'm curious about this being a conversation, how it emerged as a conversation, and how the conversation changed probably, what you thought about, and how you turned that into a book. 
And how many fist fights you had while you did it? <laughs> <laughs> zero fist fights. Yeah, zero fist fights. You want to go, Ryan? <laughs> sure, I'll start. I guess the first thing is that it started at a conference that a friend of ours, a very weird but lovely man named Dustin Atlas, and I threw in Dayton, Ohio. I presented in the morning, this weird thing about eating God. And then Biko was presenting in the afternoon. Think about Toni Morrison, Levinas, and the white voyeurism or black suffering. And I remember sitting at this table very physically and looking at Biko and just having this excitement <laughs> and thinking, I want to think with him. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Then later in the day at the hotel bar, literally, <laughs> after a few drinks, we were talking and I said, hey, I got this idea for a book. I know I just met you, but (laughs) would you want to do this? You know, we ended up actually on the same flight to this conference. And I was like, oh, there's this cute dude who's sitting over here type of thing. You know, not being creepy or anything, but like, oh, he's handsome. (laughs) Come to find out, he and I both end up landing and seeing each other at the hotel and all those things. We're like, oh, we're at the same conference. And yeah, you know, Ryan presents and he he has a student eating pancakes in the back talking about eating God. And I'm like, oh, this is a completely different way of doing philosophy. I was nervous. (laughs) You know, I was sitting there like, I'm trained in philosophy religion. We do things a little bit differently over there. But he presented a paper on Toni Morrison and Heidegger and Levinas and questions of suffering and violence and came to me at the bar and said, hey, do you want to do this? And I said, you know, I don't I don't really know. Like initially I was intrigued. And so I was like, sure, let's see if this can work out. And then Ryan invited me to give a lecture at Elon. And after I did this lecture, which was an early chapter of another book that I wrote, we had a weekend and we just sat down and read Hegel together. Wow. And so I ended up learning a lot more about different nuances. You all know the typical understanding of the dialectic, at least in religious studies, is thesis, antithesis, synthesis, this kind of thing. That's how we learn it, and it's much more dynamic than that. And so Ryan was showing that to me. We had agreed right, th- I think even before that, we had agreed to do it. And we just kept working through it. And I will tell you, there were no fist fights, but there were definitely moments where I would be like, Ryan, this this man is justifying the history of suffering. <laughs> that every move is a Theodician yeah. move, the kind of justifying of the violence. And so I was like, in relation to black studies in relation to black life, how are we going to square this? And Ryan makes his claim. He says, what if, you know, he said it a couple times, but it hit this time. He was just like, what if we consider that the slave is the thing that develops after the master-slave dialectic, not the master? So what if we read it that the protagonist was black? And I said, let's see what shakes Mm. out. Mm. And we continued after that. What intrigues me about the story that you both just told is you decided to read Hegel. I'm wondering if you could fill that in a little bit. Why did you decide on Hegel, especially Biko, given that you're like, this dude is justifying suffering? Why of all people Hegel? I mean, initially, it got put to me as a question. So Ryan was just like, hey, I've been working on this person and thinking about doing this thing, and I wanted to know what you Mm. thought. And so part of it was that I had signed on to this project. I think after I started reading him, though, like for real reading him, not like, oh, you're in grad school and you know you had to write a paper. <laughs> it was one of those things where you read him. And I told Ryan this consistently when we were reading him. So that weekend, I said, you know, this guy is brilliant. Mm. And it is annoying how brilliant he is, <laughs> Agreed. right? Agreed. The thing that intrigued me about it was twofold. One was his thought is dynamic. It's one of those things where you have a level of thought that it's constantly moving. Things are constantly moving backward and forward, inside and out. Things are getting upturned, upside down. And you have to pay attention because the moves are often subtle. And then the other piece for me that really brought me to it, to be honest with you, was King and X, Martin mm-hmm. Luther King and X. King mm-hmm. read Hegel and actually found him to be incredible incredibly informative for the work in terms of civil rights, right? And you have 
have this sort of history of figures who are either thinking dialectically or directly dealing mm-hmm. with Hegel. Malcolm X is one of these folks. Angela Davis is a dialectical thinker. Frederick Douglass, the way we read Douglass's fight with Kobe, all of this stuff was pointing to this dude. And so I'm like... I guess it's time for us to deal with this man in a way that, you know, does it differently. So, I, you know, that was the main reason for well, me. And didn't Hegel have a big impact on Du Bois as well, right? 100%. Yes, absolutely. He had a massive impact on Du Bois. I think this notion of double consciousness that Du Bois yeah. is working out is coming out of that notion of that dialectical. There's a little bit of herder there from what I've been told, but I understand Du Bois to be really wanting to think dialectically, especially in the souls of black folk. This two-ness just sort of keeps coming up over and over and over yeah. again. And this tuness does not resolve itself in some neat, nice way. It is ugly and moving and dynamic. So yeah. Ryan, did you have anything? I'm over here right in my mouth. No, you're all good. I was going to say there's a work coming out that's going to not disprove what a lot of people say, including us, about the influence of Hegel on Du Bois, but showing how Biku just said that Herder is actually far more of an influence on Du Bois. Is this your book? No, no, <laughs> no it's actually not mine. It's a friend of mine at University of Toronto. But the only other thing about Hegel was that I, as an early Deleuze person, hated Hegel. Mm-hmm. I learned how dumb that was when I studied with some of my teachers and then moved to the South and started teaching, then started to complicate my understanding of the history of philosophy. And then was in a reading group and just started reading many thinkers that show up in our book and saw the similarity and the unfolding of the dialectic. And they were just struck by how weird it was. And I thought, this can't be right. It is right. No, it's not right. It is right. It's not right. And that got me tangled up and... Couldn't let it go. So, guys, before we get deeper in the weeds here, I think for the sake of our listeners, there are a couple of things we need to do. We cannot, first of all, assume that everyone has read Hegel (laughs) or the Phenomenology of Spirit. I know this is an unfair question, but as briefly as possible, can one of you give our listeners a synopsis of what dialectics is. And I know Biko said earlier that the way it's taught in grad school often takes this thesis, antithesis, synthesis structure, and that he wanted to reject that a little bit. So maybe first tell us what the dialectic is and then how you're using your understanding of the dialectic in this book. Uh, Well, definitely give it our answer. But I always think this is a trick question, Lee, because every answer to this question is wrong. (laughs) 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 There's no one definition of the dialectic that is so undialectic. Um, well, that's why they pay me the big bucks is because I ask the trick question. <laughs> <laughs> but dialectically, that means every answer is right. <laughs> yes, right. And that's why there's two of us writing this. Right? And so every book that has to do dialectic is not written with two people. Is wrong. False. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, essentially, dialectics for Hegel, not in the ancient world and not in the more modern world, but for Hegel, has something to do with the way which things are interdependent, intergenerative constantly in relation, non-isolatable, and trying to figure out what's the logic of that interconnectedness. Stereotypically, there's a tension that is developed out of some kind of contrast, oppositional, contradistinction, something like that. And so thinking about those interrelatedness as intention and generating each other, and out of their intergeneration, more comes from that. For Hegel, there's often a kind of orientation or linearity, but we see that not actually to be the case necessarily at all, especially more interesting readings, especially reading with thinkers that we think about. And the final thing I'll say here and throw it to you, Biko, is that there are multiple dialects going on at the same time. That's true in Hegel, Mm -hmm. and that's true in our book, too. Hmm. If we think of this dialectical parallelism that we call it, there's this dialectics unfolding in Hegel from the master-slave to the Stoic, skeptic, and on. Then there's the dialectic within the black radical tradition from Douglas and Jacobs to Du Bois and, and on. 
And then there's the dialectics between them as well. So these are all kind of nested intertwining. And as messy as we read Hegel to be, in the most interesting way, we don't try to clarify completely that messiness because that would delude the dynamism of it. So we set them up, we let them play and see how that interacts. And of course, I guess there's the dialectic between Biko and myself, <laughs> which is also like the real relationship behind it, which is also dynamic and dialectical. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That was the original reading that I'd had of the dialectic. And then you recognize that what understands itself as an assertion often has this hint of negativity or like a no contained in its yes, not as oppositional, but within itself. So how do you think through that? And once Ryan showed me this, I was like, oh, this book makes a lot more sense. And so for me, it's that internal kernel. <laughs> we might call it doubt. We might call it negation. We might call it death as Hegel does sometimes. Like we might call it whatever, but this internal instability at the heart of something requires deeper reflection and quite frankly, a different kind of action once that internal inconsistency or negativity shows itself. And you see this within the dialectic of thinkers that we're working with. I love that you all call it the black radical tradition. I'm thinking of it in sort of a pluralistic term, because for me, Booker T. Washington mm -hmm. is not nearly as <laughs> radical as, <laughs> right? And right. to a certain extent, Zora Neale Hurston too, she is a mm -hmm. radical individualist. And in many mm -hmm. ways, we might understand her as conservative in some ways. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, they're also speaking to this larger movement of how do black people find ways to live right they find these ways to live i might disagree with some of the ethical decisions that they make and yet they are part of this articulated tradition of thinking and moving so i love this ryan sets it up it's messy all the way around but in this messiness and in this internal instability you keep having new insights grow Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance... You can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. The last point you were making, Biko, about figures like Booker T. Washington and Zora Neale Hurston reminds me of an argument that Cornell West makes in a really early essay back in the 70s in Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience, where I wouldn't have thought about it in these terms until putting it in the context of the argument of your book. But really what West is pointing out there is a number of figures within African-American history 
he reads them dialectically in the sense that he's looking at them as individuals, but also how they are related to the society in which they find themselves, Black culture and Black community, but also the wider community of the United States. And I'm beginning now to see that he teases out the way in which the society and the community constitutes who they are as thinkers. And then in the other direction, how they as individual thinkers contribute and further alter and constitute the cultural and communal aspects of the African-American experience. Yeah, the essay that you're talking about, if I remember, I might be thinking of a different one. He has a typology at the end as well that he thinks through. Yeah. And one of the things that I would say is to just really just echo you is, yeah, these folks are in context and yet they're giving voice to these larger societal dynamics. It's more or less difficult to see depending on the thinkers that you deal with. So for example, Harriet Jacobs is caught up in this Christian context. And so in very real ways, my question has always been, how much is Lydia Marie Child editing her words? Mm. This white woman who's a Christian, Hmm. she is situated in a context in which Christianity, particularly Protestant, prudish Christianity, Hmm. is dictating the sexual ethics of someone who really doesn't have the kind of agency that someone else might have. And so I bring this up just to say there's this twofold play. On the one hand, she's situated in this. And on the other hand, she's giving voice to so many people who may or may not have had to deal with the same kinds of sexual violence that's operative there. And when we situate them both within that larger historical context that they're in and in this larger dialectic of Black spirit that we're showing... Booker T. Washington doesn't come out nearly as ugly as I wanted him to sort of come out, right? He's part of this development. I mean, Garvey comes later, and there's no way to think Garvey without thinking Booker T. Washington. It's just, it's not Mm -hmm. possible. Mm. You're just unfolding a bit of the internal dialectics to the Black tradition, the way in which you don't have a Garvey unless you have a Washington, and you don't have a Du Bois unless you have a Washington, and you don't have a King unless you have an Axel. And so they start mapping onto each other, and then they would flip, too, because we were like, oh, Du Bois is more aligning with maybe King, and then Washington's more with Axe, but actually, no, maybe they flip the other way around. And so the lack of a clean evolution, maybe, and the way in which they're taking up and pulling on each other. Just one final example is like, yes, Hurston is definitely a more conservative thinker, but also she's a freer sexual thinker of her own individuality, which is more radical than a Jacobs or an Angela Cooper. So there's never a clean mapping then of the radicality or the conservativeness. And that just pulls out the messiness of this dialectic. Yeah, so picking up on that messiness, I mean, one of the things that I found interesting in the book is the use of Stoicism to talk about Booker T. Washington. I don't remember the lines, but when Hegel introduces Stoicism in the section from the phenomenology, he talks about it emerging in a culture in crisis and conflict and how the Stoic turn to their own inward sense of their own freedom is a response to this hostile environment. And to me, the concept from Hegel situated on this very different history into the early 20th century, like it changed the way I thought about Stoicism, but also changed the way I thought about Booker T. Washington, as you were saying, because he doesn't come off as bad, because in some sense, this turn inward is kind of an attempt to deal with if a world doesn't recognize you, if you can find no grounds for recognition in the world, you posit, as you point out, this future recognition, right? This one day, my actions will be seen as worthwhile, not in the world around me, because it's a world of denigration and exploitation, but a future day I will be recognized. Yes. Washington's turn inward 
is in many ways foreshadowed by Harriet Jacobs's hiding in the crawl space, right? That there is this odd existential turn inward that we don't necessarily articulate. But the other piece in terms of this future orient, and this is something that I did have to work through and wrestle with, is Washington is suggesting in the midst of a context of profound degradation, hell, we only have these options available to us. We better make the best of them. And we better make the best of them as a work on ourselves and in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that that produces, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, kind of politics of respectability, fine, fair. But his Mm -hmm. argument is industry. That's what we got. Cast down your buckets where you are. And it feels to my 21st century ears as a problematic conservatism, bootstrap yourself up. And yet, At that time, we have to ask ourselves consistently what options are available. And in this moment of crisis, Booker T. Washington is doing these things, right? Making these particular claims and saying, cast down your buckets where you are. Founding HBCUs, producing these areas for folks to do this stuff and saying, let us work on ourselves, Mm. in ourselves, in a way that's different from what Zora Neale Hurston is doing, but in a way that also sort of names that if we do this work in ourselves and on ourselves, we will be good. And it leans, I think, in very real ways to what we see with King, particularly, mm-hmm. that the more that he works, which is sort of interesting to me, the more that he works to try and do this work for others, and it keeps turning around that it's him, that it's him. He's the figure. Mm-hmm. He's the sort of, like, guy. Yeah, I'm thinking about how the Stoic and Washington are marked by these figures of turning in in order to sculpt an eye that will project onto the possibility for others to pull themselves, as Washington you know, famously says, out from slavery so that the definitions that have been imposed on them from the anti-Black world aren't sticking because they don't stick to that image of the Black person, the Black man that is self-sufficient in that way. And that's a different kind of thing than Douglas, where Douglas is writing the first slave narrative, right? He's writing the first definition of what that looks like. He doesn't have a predecessor by which to say, well, what does it look like to be a successful black person in America outside these determinations of slavery and into blackness? And then what allows Washington to be that position, I think, is having Douglas, Mm. right? And then being able to see what it looked like on myself to see Douglas outward and then to turn inward, and then doing that to then project onward to this future community, external self-sufficiency. And then it gets messier there because now after Douglas, I'm thinking just the men here, which, you know, we want to also include the Stoic women, in this case, Ida B. Wells, right? And what does that look like? You have this debate, almost war against Washington and Du Bois about who's the heir of Douglas, Mm -hmm. down to, in fact, like wanting to write the book on them. And the person who won out, who got to write the first book, was not Du Bois, it was Washington. And so he got to shape what was that picture of that successful Black person and project that forward. I'd like to go back to something that you said in the first segment, Ryan, about Hegel's dialectic of lordship and bondage, the master-slave dialectic, which Jason famously calls the hit track of the phenomenology, the one that everybody (laughs) knows, right? We did an episode on that dialectic, the lordship and bondage dialectic, at the end of last season. And I was really intrigued to hear you say in the first part of this segment that one of the things that you and Biko were trying to think through is how many of the dialectical formations inside the Black intellectual tradition arose after the so-called dialectic of master and slave. 
Can you just say more about that, either of you? I think that's really intriguing. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of situate the relationship between your argument and Haeckel. Clarification as in like our book as tracking the emergence of those figures post Hegel's articulation of it? Sorry, what I thought I understood you say in the first segment was that one of the things that you guys wanted to think about was what if at the end of the master-slave dialectic, Hegel's master-slave dialectic, all of these new dialectics emerge. Right, right. If I'm just not repeating what you said, like you could correct me, but I'm- No, 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 no. No, no. It was that if the slave were black, and it's a question I've always had, and I'm sure there's ways of actually showing its problem, but this is just how I've read it. The phenomenology is the story of the slave through and through the book, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And then the question was like, well, what happens to the master? Like, where does he go? And then if you think about this racial dynamic that's very US-centric, or at least North American-centric casting of it, as we totally admit- then what does that mean for the master? Because in the American story, the master doesn't go away, right? There's very present, but it's not that story. It's a different story. So the phenomenology is telling a different story. And that speculative claim, which I think is textually, at least for me, sufficiently shown, that's the story we wanted to tell. And I think that's one of the things that when Pico and I were first reading side by side for days on end, this started to make sense and started to have buy-in. Is that right, Pico? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was once it hit me that the slave was the protagonist of the phenomenology, it immediately slapped me in the face that there's a blackness at the heart of Hegel's logic, racialized blackness, right? There is something to be said about the fact that Hegel is using these words, Lord and Bondsman, and yet not racializing them. And so we wanted to understand what if we took this term slave in the context in which Hegel is writing seriously. And from there, a whole bunch of different dialectics do emerge. You look at someone like Frederick Douglass, and I think this is self-conscious, especially as he continues to write his later autobiographies, this Hegelian struggle, right? That that's what you see with someone like Douglass. You read Harriet Jacobs, and that strategy is not afforded to her. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do with the fact that her move, which is in many ways two moves, one is to choose who to have a child with. Because she could not have a kid, right? She could not reproduce under the sexual violence of slavery. She was to have children. That was the economics of it all. She's being harassed by her master. And what she decides is, I can't keep saying no to you, but I can say yes to somebody else. And this is a move that's not a direct confrontation, not a direct fight, not a direct struggle. And yet it shuts the master's sexual violence down, if for a time. Mm. And then the other move that she does, which is so fascinating to me, is she hides in this crawl space for years, Mm. watching her kids grow. So there isn't this like, I went from a brute to becoming a man. You know, I have this Mm. sort of like root on my hip and I'm beating the hell out of, you know, that move doesn't happen for her. Mm. Mm hmm. And yet there is this moment where she is easily recognizing that her labor, sexual labor, physical labor, economic labor, is what makes Dr. Flint possible. So you have these two sort of moves that are happening. When Ryan started showing this to me in terms of like what Hegel's doing, and I started paying attention to what I had been reading, I said, well, hell, you know, there are these multiple dialectical moves happening at the same time. Yeah, that's it. At every stage, it gets more and more complicated in this way is that I think Jason and your blog post said it really well, that both exceeds Hegel and is less than Hegel. And in that mismatch, there's a dynamism so that what master-slave dialectics looks like for Jacobs and for Douglas demonstrate these other ways of fighting, other ways of getting out. So as Biko's formulation was, Douglas fought his way out and Jacobs hit her way out, keeping that kind of escape, that kind of fugitivity that both generates the dialectic 
pulls the dialectic, undermines the dialectic, and continues the story. So if I look at these two examples, to put them in more Hegelian language as shapes of spirit, both fighting and hiding would each be a struggle, as I think you both have put it. But that struggle requires an other against which to mm-hmm. struggle. And I'm wondering how, in thinking about the struggle that is the dialectic and the dialectic that is the struggle, how you then manage to avoid what I think is the most obvious reading of Hegel's phenomenology, namely that this is a development. In other words, it's not just messiness, but like the shit's going somewhere. It's teleological. Yeah. Yeah, And it seems like as you're presenting the shapes of to borrow from your title, Black Spirit, there's not a linear development, there's not a teleological development. And can I just explain for Dave, teleology is a movement toward an end that is definite and everything moves for the sake of that end. And for our guest, Dave is Rick's brother-in-law who listens to the podcast. (laughs) And is not a philosopher. (laughs) I'll start it, Biko. Go ahead, Ryan. Just a quick thing, and I think Jason does it well in focusing on not this as a linear story, a theological story, but as shapes or figures, or a word that somewhere in the phonology, Hegel says, silhouettes, Mm. actually. I've always found that to be a really nice way of thinking about that, about how it both maps and does not map onto the world, on history, both as abstract and yet concrete. A funny way that works is that although they're set up as clean figures, slave, skeptic, and on, each of those defining moves for those figures show up elsewhere. The turn inward that is in the Stoic, it happens, as Biko said earlier, with Jacobs and turning inwards for seven years in the attic, right? It happens every time that Douglas goes to write his story again and again and again. And so Mm -hmm. those figures are aligned, I think, with moves that show up all over the place. And they're not like, oh, once those moves are done, then we're good. We don't have to work that out anymore. They keep returning and they keep messing things up when other moves occur. So that's the first thing is like, think of them as figures or as characters or silhouettes rather than an unfolding towards something that's going to get better. We move chronologically through history. And so people mistake that chronological move through history as an articulation of the development of something like progress. The difficulty with that particular reading is Angela Davis is still catching hell, (laughs) right? So you can't necessarily understand it as to be, I mean, it's all shade. It's Barack Obama, like, we're better now. (laughs) It doesn't function in that particular way. And what you actually see, particularly in Hegel, is that these other moments keep popping up so that internal instability, that's how I articulate it because it makes the most sense for me, that that internal instability, you're seeing it pop up back and forth in all of these other different ways. The one thing that we didn't want to do, only the readers can decide, is produce a teleological development of Black spirit. It looks that way because we move through history and yet all of these folks are talking to each other, talking back to one another, talking forward to one another. They are reincarnations of one another, pre-incarnations of one another. And so because of those different moves, what you have in the Black radical tradition is a radical, perpetual striving for something better that we cannot fully understand, but we nevertheless push toward. Mm. And so it's not teleological in the sense that it's guaranteed. It's not even teleological in the sense that everybody had the same ideas in mind. It's clear. Washington and Du Bois don't agree with one another. Right. And yet at the same time, there's a move toward liberation that both of them seem to be trying to say. 
Okay, well, that last part is teleological, though, right? It's fine for there to be a struggle where there is negation, but if both sides are moving towards the same thing, namely liberation, then that is a dialectical struggle. I suppose if I could just frame this as a devil's advocate question, and I'll take my cue from you men, well, actually, isn't it the case... Isn't it the case that a dialectics that is not teleological is not a dialectic? It's just struggle. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking through. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, since you mentioned both in the book and Biko, you mentioned in your last comment, Angela Davis, who comes out of a critical theory tradition in which there is a negative dialectics that the whole operation of it is to show the power of dialectics in a non-teleological context. And by the way, I just have to say as an aside, I chuckle because do you all know there's a drag queen whose name is Vaginal Davis? You should check her out. She's fantastic. Anyhow, I don't know if the two have ever met, but I think there is an example of a dialectics that isn't teleological. I think that's totally fair. I'm not as familiar with the negative dialectical tradition, but I can tell you in terms of black studies, and actually Du Bois writes about this in Souls of Black Folk. It's the opening piece of our spiritual strivings. I think the piece about liberation is something toward which many people are working. Yes, I think we understand that as repressive activity, but teleology in a certain way wants to guarantee the outcome uh, as well. Like that's how I think of teleology as well. And in this particular move, what we see is none of this is guaranteed. They're feeling their way through. They are struggling their way, striving throughout all of this, trying to make sense in real time of what's happening. Hence, all the different political positions that you have when you look at these particular figures. And so I think maybe there is something purposive in the sense of black uplift, Black liberation, that this is something that many of them are yearning for, but it's not guaranteed in the way that a Marxist might guarantee, yeah, the revolution will happen. Mm. I don't see that necessarily happening. But it motivates the struggle, you would say. The reason there is struggle is because we're aiming at something, even if that something is not guaranteed. The movement doesn't mean theology. Uh There can be motion away from a thing that's not theological. There can be motion towards something that is not theological. That is, if you're moving away from slavery, you're moving towards that which is not slavery. Now, if it's an image of something that was already contained there is simply the unfolding of that, and there's no say in what happens to get that point, that's not theological. But if you say, here's a site of horror, and we're developing complicated ways of escaping that, that movement away is not movement towards a telos. Mm. That's the first thing. So what does that look like then? Moving away from slavery and oppression towards liberation. Is liberation then some kind of telos that we're going to reach? Or another site of struggle and situatedness, which we then need to grapple with again. The key thing to all this, though, is that there's not one line, right? You can be moving away from slavery and towards something else, towards something else that is not simply the next step on a larger overarching thing. King would be a theological thinker, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. This arc towards mm-hmm. justice, but as a subject to contest. Mm-hmm. So I think the way I push back on the teleological unfolding here is not the linearity. You can have movement, you can have movement away and towards, you can have escape without presuming a telos that will organize and make sense of it all. I want to add here too that I take the point, Lee, I really do, that at the end of the day, some of these thinkers are like Ryan just pointed out are certainly teleological thinkers, right? King is clear. Mm -hmm. King is clear about this. He's committed to it. And in certain ways, Angela Davis is too. They might push us toward a sense of teleology, 
But then when you look at them all together in this mishmash, like it's a monopoly game, except without the capitalism, like you're going in circles, right? That there's a particular way in which we're constantly circling back, circling back, circling back and going into different places, making different detours, mm-hmm. all of these different things. And so King is definitely teleological. X, I'm not so sure. Garvey absolutely is teleological. Africa is the goal. Like, so there are folks who are doing that. And yet... How do you square Garvey's Pan-Africanism with Zora Neale Hurston's forget all of that, we're going to turn to us and love on ourselves, right? How do we think through all of those things? For me, it's a gentle pushback in the sense of like individually, many of these thinkers are teleological. The overarching move for me and for us is what Ryan said, that it's not necessarily linear in that case because there's all of these jutting outs of different directions. been doing a lot of experimentation in the bar lab and we've determined that philosophy is best served with a whiskey back. Unfortunately, all of that experimentation has run us up a hefty bar tab. You can help us defray the cost of this podcast and keep us independent and ad-free by signing up to be one of our patrons at patreon.com/hotelbarsessions. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, or several of them, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com, where you'll find links to support this podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. Now, we know this sounds like begging, but really, no, it's actually just begging. So press pause for a second, go donate to the podcast, and then come back for the rest of the conversation. We'll keep pouring profound thoughts one episode at a time. So I want to say that I agree, Ryan, that one way of reading this intellectual history is as maybe a moving away from something or maybe a moving towards something without a telos. That is guaranteed. But if what we're doing is reading these struggles as, you know, moving in different directions, as multiple, as circling back and then going in different directions without an organizing principle, there's got to be other ways to explain what that is. Mm. But that's not dialectics. Dialectics does have an organizing principle. I maybe disagree with all of you that teleology guarantees the achievement of the telos. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think teleology describes a movement towards some end or purpose, period, Whether that's achievable or ever is achieved is beside the point. But dialectics gives us a way of understanding struggles as struggles. It gives me a reason to say, oh, there's a contest between King and X, Mm -hmm. right? I can understand it in the context of an organizing principle of a move towards liberation where these two guys are negating each other's paths towards that end. I'll be brief here. I appreciate this. My only thinking here is that if we're talking about an organizing principle for the movement of black life and black thought, it is negation or nothingness. Calvin Warren writes a book called Ontological Terror and articulates blackness as nothingness. And he calls it black nihilism, so on and so forth. We've had conversations about the distinction between negation and nihilism, all of that kind of stuff. What I will say right here is that this is a story that is in part about Hegel and also a story about people who have been said to be nothing. (laughs) And people who lean into that being nothing, which means that whatever purposive principle, black liberation, however we want to frame that, I think the organizing principle beneath this concept of liberation is nothing. 
people are moving, people are doing, people are struggling. And perhaps it doesn't give a reason for the struggle, but it names it as something that in my mind is quintessential to black study. Don't quite want to let go of this just yet. (laughs) And I'm really sorry, but just to respond directly to what Biko just said, I mean, Biko, you said earlier that when you read the Lordship and Bondage dialectic, you said there's a blackness to the bondsman, right? There's also a femininity to the bondsman, Mm -hmm. the bondswoman. So we could read the same story. And I'll just say, as a woman, just as you've described the history of black thought, there have been the same struggles, the same disagreements in the history of feminist thought. I do believe that they're organized in the direction of liberation. And I do believe that the process towards that is one of negation. I do think... Hegel's right about this, but I don't think that the organizing principle of the struggle is negation itself because, you know, if presented with liberation, women would not negate it, would not say, okay, now here's the next thing to negate. Uh, I hear you. I mean, I would nuance a little bit of what we mean by women. I'm thinking about Horton Spillers here and questions of black women as being ungendered, but I take your point. The only thing that I would respond is as I'm thinking about someone like Horton Spillers is that she might actually negate liberation on a feminist track, not because she doesn't want it, but because she would first be interrogating, well, what does the liberation of women mean when you have a group of folks who are ungendered? I'm just simply suggesting that when it comes to blackness, all of these things are up for contestation. So I think you're right that in many ways, there is teleology happening everywhere for many of these thinkers. I think for someone like Zora Neale Hurston, I don't know if her move is, look, we really want liberation for black folks. She's just simply saying, I want to be a person. And to the extent that that desire to be a person is teleological, I think that's absolutely right. But I think this is also someone who died penniless. And I also think in terms of black feminist tradition, Angela Davis included, there would be questions about what constitutes women's liberation. How might we think about that? Because black liberation has often been coded as male. And this is what we try to show with many of the women figures is that all of these things that are presumed become under contest, become called into question. Totally agree with that. Yeah, Yeah, that's how I would think about it. And I got to say, Lee, thank you for that question. We're processing it like seriously. We're thinking it through. Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting that comes up in your book and comes in this conversation is not just the telos and the direction, but also the repetitions. Certain figures occur again and again in Hegel. But one of the things that occurs again and again in Hegel is work. You know, Marx's criticism of early Hegel was that Hegel has a concept of work, but it's an abstract concept. It's not connected to the reality of work. And I think you kind of echo that when you say that work cannot be the thing that liberates the slave, because the work is the reason for the slave's existence. But then I also think it's interesting that work repeats in your book. There's the whole question of work as dedication. How does work become a practice? How does work both affirm and negate the self? At the end of the day, we're trying to think of a philosophy that would become a practice. And how work functions as a way to both think about things, but to show the reality that exceeds our thought about the world as well, like a materialist sense. I'm thinking the question of this book and the direction it points to in thinking about a kind of practice, both a practice of philosophy and a practice that goes beyond philosophy. Just to show how complicated what you just said, Jason, is is that there's this critique of the healing idea, perhaps, of work where sets you free, brutally repeated later on. While Douglas has to fight his way out or Jacob has to hide their way out, think about how work shows up in Washington. Mm -hmm. 
Labor is how you make the community self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. Think about how work shows up in RDB Wells. Bringing her baby on these circuits doing work. And how does hard work look to boys? And then even with King, like his section is called, from Hegel, Sacramental Work and Desire. Mm -hmm. So there's that integration after its initial rejection of it for the ends that confine them into work for others. So working for white power versus working for black power and black liberation and black committee and anti-blackness. Work is an engine, but it's that double-sided brutal engine that can be all those things. So just to demonstrate how work shows up in complicated ways, even if it's rejected initially mm -hmm. in those first moments as a way to liberation. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I'll add here in terms of this is the book itself, Phenomenology of Black Spirit, is an expression of that work. And we make the invitation either at the introduction or the conclusion or both that what we have tried to do is produce an invitation for others to take up this continued work. So everything that Ryan discussed in terms of these different shapes, these different movements, in terms of sacramental work and desire, mm -hmm. and in many ways for many of these folks, it doesn't end well for them. King, it does not end well for him. It just doesn't. And yet there's a profound invitation in him and in X too, and in Angela Davis as well, that we must continue this. Right. King has this profound thing the day before he dies, he gives a sermon. He says, I may not get there with you, but I've seen the promised land. And there's something about, yes, we can talk about religion and theology and his invocations and his conjurations of these folks from the Hebrew Bible. But the other piece that's happening here is this profound invitation to continue the work. And our hope, I think, is, Ryan, I am going to speak for you just for a second. Our <laughs> hope is that somebody take up this work as well. This was an invitation for folks to take this up and say, well, what possibilities can emerge if we take these canonical figures in philosophy seriously enough to level serious critiques against them mm -hmm. within their own framings, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be Hegel, but how do we take up this work knowing that Black folks in the United States, Black folks in the Caribbean, Black folks in Africa, Africa have been reading these white philosophers and providing both incredible usage of their work, but mm -hmm. also incredible critiques of their work. Yeah. Fanon is reading Hegel. Yep. You know, Angela Cooper is reading all of these people. They're doing this particular work. And I love that question of work, Jason, because it is both a cautionary tale in the sense of you do not identify in and as the work, but it is also an invitation to say, we keep doing this because period. <laughs> Not because something else is there, but because this is what we will do. Well, you guys, unfortunately, the bartender has given us last call. <laughs> I cannot tell you how great this has been to have yeah. both of you. I really hope everyone goes out and immediately buys this book. We are so lucky to have had this conversation. And I wish we could do a second version of it or like whatever, part a sequel, part two. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about. Yeah, because I want to come back and talk more about dialectics and why I have a different view of dialectics, I think, than Lee does. But you know who's not interested in the dialectics is the bartender bartender. So <laughs> I want to join Lee in thanking you for joining us. This has been really great. I want to also join Lee in saying buy the book. Yeah. And then a separate plug, the book is published by Edinburgh University Press. And I think Edinburgh is doing some of the most interesting publishing in philosophy and in theory today. So y'all should check it out. And Edinburgh, call us. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, guys. This has been great. I just want to also thank you all and really thanks Jason for the kind words he's shared. Of course, an honor just to 
talk with you. I admire all of you individually. And so it's nice to actually sit down at a bar and <laughs> yeah, talk with you. And I'll just say thank you all as well. I super appreciate this conversation. Lee, I love the conversation about teleology and all of that. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for some time and just really thankful to be here. And time flies when you're having fun slash having drinks. But, <laughs> you know, but I think at the end of the day, this has been so riveting and it helps to situate what we think we were trying to do. And we're just thankful to be able to talk about it. All right, guys, we will catch you for the sequel. <laughs> I'm looking forward. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you.